Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. When I say Acts chapter 18, I feel like we're really making some progress here. I try not to think about when we started our study through the book of Acts, because then I feel like less progress has been made. But we're doing it, people. We are doing it. We are making our way. Acts 18. We're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. We're going to be looking today at the work God began to do in Corinth. The work God began to do in Corinth. Our main text is Acts 18, verses 1 through 11. But let's begin by reading verse 1, and we'll consider some context here. Acts 18, verse 1. Luke, writing here, he says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. That's the end of our study today. God bless you all, and good night. No. These things is Luke referring to Paul's preaching at the Areopagus in Athens on Mars Hill, the council, the religious and educational council that oversaw really what was being taught and pushed through in thought uh, in the city of Athens. Paul had been brought before the council because they were just confused and, you know, they didn't really know what Paul was bringing as he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So there's some more investigation that happens before this council on what we know as Mars Hill. And so Paul preached Jesus. He began with creation and he worked his way through to tell how great the one true God is declaring him ultimately to be the man who God has ordained to be the righteous judge. The one that he gave his seal of approval on and put his stamp of assurance on by raising him from the dead. And when Paul began to preach about the resurrection, the people just they, they lost interest. They, they lost their ability to hear. It, 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 in their minds, was something that they were not into in their own philosophical backgrounds. A bodily resurrection was something that the Athens, the Athenians, would have been repulsed by. And so as soon as that happened, we find out that Paul began to be mocked by some, and others began to just put off what Paul was saying, like, hey, we'll hear you some other time, and, and Paul took that as his cue. Okay, this is, I've done what I've needed to do. I've proclaimed the truth of who God is. I've pointed them to the resurrected Christ. He departs from the council. We're told that at least one of the men in the council did believe in Jesus, that him and a woman named Damaris and some others did join Paul. We don't know that a church was started here, but there is a remnant of believers now in the city of Athens that Paul had poured into, at least for some amount of time. We don't know how much. But after these things took place, we now find that Paul travels about 50 miles west to the city of Corinth, which was the provincial capital of Greece for the Roman Empire in the region of Achaia, which was in southern Greece. According to the 
Lexham Bible Dictionary, first century Corinth was a city rich in both history and wealth due to its geographic advantages. It was a city of cultural diversity, a hub of Roman paganism, and a hotbed for immorality. It also hosted the biannual Isthmian Games, which drew throngs from across Greece. As an astute missionary, Paul likely chose Corinth for its importance as a busy center of culture and commerce and its ability to receive large crowds, which was served as audience to the gospel before returning to their diverse homelands. Excavations have shown that Corinth and its surrounding area were home to dozens of temples and shrines dedicated to diverse deities. Population estimates for Corinth, where Athens had about maybe 11,000 people, Corinth had upwards of 300,000 residents, plus, according to one scholar, an additional 460,000 slaves. So upwards of three quarters of a million people in the city of Corinth. Added to that, Corinth had developed a reputation for sexual license, was known for its sexual immorality and prostitution and incest even. And this was the kind of environment, the kind of culture that Paul was stepping into after leaving Athens. But added to that cultural and historical context, Paul actually gives us some personal context of where he was at inwardly in what he wrote to the Corinthian believers a little later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We find Paul uh, reminding the believers in Corinth of this inner sort of state that Paul was in when he got to Corinth. He says this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. He said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except, Christ, uh, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Notice Paul just wanted to be faithful to declare to them the testimony of God, to, to be a witness, to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not using persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that their faith would not be in Paul, would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But we also need to Notice that when Paul was with them, as he said in verse 3, he was with them in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. John Stott, Bible commentator and, and pastor, had some insights into what Paul might have been dealing with as he got to Corinth. He said, we need to penetrate deeper into the causes of Paul's fear and the reason for his resolve. What was it about Corinth which occasioned his alarm and necessitated his decision to preach only Christ and his cross. He says, It was surely the pride and immorality of the Corinthian people which intimidated Paul, since the cross comes into direct collision with both. 
To begin with, the Corinthians were a proud people. Their intellectual arrogance emerges clearly in Paul's correspondence with them. They were also proud of their city, which Julius Caesar had beautifully rebuilt in 46 BC. They boasted of its wealth and culture, of the world-famous Isthmian Games, which it hosted every other year, and of its political prestige as the capital of provincial Achaia, taking precedence over even Athens. But the cross undermines all human pride. It insists that we sinners have absolutely nothing with which to buy or indeed contribute to our salvation. No wonder that not many wise, influential, or upper-class Corinthians responded to the gospel. John Stott goes on to say, though, secondly, Corinth was associated in everybody's mind with immorality. Behind the city, nearly 2,000 feet above sea level, rose the rocky eminence called the Acrocorinth. On its flat summit stood the temple of Aphrodite or Venus, the god of love, the goddess of love. A thousand female slaves served her and roamed the city's streets by night as prostitutes. The sexual promiscuity of Corinth was proverbial, so that Corinthiasomai meant to practice immorality, and Corinthiastes was a synonym for a harlot. Corinth was the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. But the gospel of Christ crucified summoned the Corinthians to repent, uh, to repentance and holiness and warned them that the sexually immoral world would not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, It is in these ways that Christ's cross, in its call for self-humbling and self-denial, is a stumbling block to the proud and the sinful. Hence Paul's weakness, fear, and much trembling in his necessary decision in Corinth to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. These are helpful things for us to consider as we now find Paul ministering in the city of Corinth. But I want to point out that the work that God began to do in Corinth began with the work God was doing first in the life of Paul. You know, in the midst of Paul dealing with weakness and fear and much trembling, or we could say would be a result of strong anxiety, God was doing something in Paul as he arrived in Corinth to, to strengthen his resolve of how he's gonna, he was going to approach this city with the gospel so that in spite of his weakness... In spite of his fear, in spite of his anxiety, he would be faithful to the call that God had put upon his life to be a witness. And this reminds us that before God does a work through us, he first wants to do a work in us. You ever found that to be true in your life? Like there's, you know, God is wanting to do something through you, but there's something inwardly that God is wanting to do in you first. There's a preparation of heart. There's a refining sort of element that's needed. There's maybe some uh, victory over some struggles. There's an equipping that God is wanting to do in your life. There's an inner sort of fortifying that God is wanting to accomplish by his spirit so that the work that he's wanting to do through you 
can happen in the way that God desires for it to. You know, we look throughout Scripture, and there are so many examples of God putting a calling upon someone's life, but then there being even years of time between the call and when that person actually stepped into the thing that God was calling them to do. This was true of David, 16 to 17 years after being anointed to be king, actually stepping into that role. That was true of Moses, 40 years. That there's things that God will call us to. There's things that God is wanting to do through our lives. But first, he's wanting to do a work in us. And I think it's important for us to be reminded of that because oftentimes we're looking ahead at the next step and what we're neglecting is that first step of what God is doing right now. That work that God is doing inside of us right now, the way that he's growing and stretching and refining us right now that we might not think is very great. We can despise just like the Israelites did in the time of the temple being destroyed. We can despise the day of small things where we don't feel like God is doing a big work and miss that in the small things, God is working in big ways. Guys, listen, God is always wanting to do a work through us. The question isn't if God wants to use us. The question isn't if God wants to make our lives effective for his kingdom. The question is, God, what are you wanting to first do in me so that that work that you're wanting to do through me can actually take place? And to have open eyes, to have humble hearts, to be able to hear the voice of the Lord in those days of small things, in those times of that inward work. And see great value in what he's doing right now. What he's doing right now. Not the thing that you're wanting to see him do. Not the thing that you're praying that he'll do in the future but the thing that God has already been doing in you and in me right now in this very moment. God was working in the life of the Apostle Paul because this inner work was necessary in order for Paul to be the missionary that God was going to make him to reach the people of Corinth. So we get some of this context that's really, really important for us to grab a hold of as we see the rest of our account and even the things that we'll look at next time. But let's keep reading verse 2 through 4. It says in verse 2, And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius 
had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So, not only was Paul's life intense, Paul's vocation was intense. I need my backup drummer with a little cymbal hit. Intense. He's a tent maker. I knew that wasn't going to go well. I tried. I went for it. Anyways. Intense. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Paul, just like you just left Athens alone, he arrives in Corinth alone. I, I would imagine, along with the things that John Stott kind of speculated, that that could have been part of the fear and trembling and weakness. Three quarters of a million, of million people in a city, and you're all by yourself. Can you imagine how overwhelming that could feel? God, how am I supposed to reach all these people with your gospel? What a daunting task that could potentially feel like if we were in Paul's shoes. Paul was alone. But it seems that soon after he gets to Corinth, he meets this Jewish man named Aquila, who was born in Pontus. Pontus was in the northeastern portion of modern-day Turkey who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, who also in Scripture is known as as Prisca. This couple ending up in Corinth because Claudius Caesar had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, a a command that actually uh, we know historically happened in the year AD 49. Because of that command, this couple ended up hundreds of miles from Rome in the city of Corinth, which was situated on major trade routes and known for its commerce, and it's here that they had set up shop and continued in their tent-making trade. Their vocation was also intense, but I digress. Because Paul was a a tent-maker by trade, which was how he earned his living when not being supported by believers and churches he had personally poured into, like the church in Philippi who had on multiple occasions sent financial support packages to Paul. Here in Corinth, he seems to join Aquila and Priscilla in their business, and he actually stays with them. Now, we don't know and we're not told if Aquila and Priscilla were already Christians before meeting Paul, or if Paul led them to a saving knowledge of Jesus while living and working with them. But this couple is going to become great friends and ministry partners with the Apostle Paul, which we'll consider some more in our next study in Acts. But I want to point out here that the work that God began to do in Corinth, not only was a work that God was first doing in the life of the Apostle Paul, but it was a a work that included 
those that God brought around Paul who no doubt ministered to Paul. We see that here with Aquila and Priscilla. We also are going to see it in verse 5 with Silas and Timothy arriving from Macedonia to join Paul. But there's a, a work that God is wanting to do in us that he wants to do through other believers being used by him in our lives and at us in other people's lives. There is a work that happens through godly relationships that can't be discounted. There is a sharpening. There is an accountability. There is an encouragement. How do we bear one another's burdens when we don't have relationships with another? How, how can we seek to sharpen someone with their, when there's not another person to, to sharpen or to sharpen us? To help equip us, to help pour into us and, and us with them. There is a work that God does continually in our lives and through our lives that happens through godly friendships, through godly relationships with other believers that is so necessary. I pray that each of us has those sorts of friendships, those sorts of relationships with other, with other people where there's a growth spiritually that's taken place because of how God's used someone else or, or, or multiple someone else's in our lives. And I pray that that would be true of how God would use us in someone else's life. These are the sorts of things that we say, see take place oftentimes in the small group setting where we have that time to really get to know other people, to really hear what's going on in someone else's life, to be able to open up, to share struggles and joys. And for some more personal ministry to take place. See, the small group setting isn't just a place to come and receive. It's a place to come and actually seek to serve. That's true of our gathering here on Sundays as well. Gosh, how much would change in our church dynamic I mean, you guys already are servants. I see that. I see how God uses so many of you. But if we came not going, how can I be blessed? How can God use someone else in my life? What can I receive? But Lord, how do you want me to give? How do you want to use me? How would you want to lead me in blessing someone else and strengthening someone else and and, and encouraging someone else. When we have that sort of mindset shift take place in our lives, you can bet that there's going to be a, a flourishing that happens in, to an even de greater degree because we're a body of people who are actively looking to love on one another and see other people be all that Jesus desires for them to be. 
Yeah, that's a sweet thing when that takes place. But we also see in verse 4, while Paul was working during the week, no doubt ministering through his tent-making trade, every Sabbath he was going to the synagogue to reason, to have a dialogue with and seek to persuade or convince the Jews and Greeks who were the Gentile God-fearers in the synagogue setting, reasoning with them and seeking to persuade them about Jesus. No matter what city Paul found himself in, if there was a synagogue, he was going to go there and seek to help his fellow Jews and any God-fearing Greeks see that Jesus was and is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Let's continue on in verses 5 through 8 of our account. Verse 5, Luke writes, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, pretty cool name, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Silas and Timothy finally come from Macedonia. We remember that when Paul was brought by the Berean church by sea to come to Athens to try to protect him from the gospel-rejecting Jews that had traveled from Thessalonica. (laughs) It's like anywhere that they caught word that Paul was preaching, they're going to show up and try to create a mob to try to end Paul's life. The Berean believers take him, they escort him by sea, those some 300 miles down the coast to southern Greece, to the city of Athens. But when they got there, Paul sent a message back. He sends the believers back to tell Silas and Timothy, hey, come to me, like as quickly as you can. Like, you guys, come join me. Well, Paul ends his time in Athens, now finds himself in Corinth, and somehow Silas and Timothy catch up with Paul. They find him in Corinth, and once they reunited, it seems that the Holy Spirit used this reunion of this ministry team to ignite an even greater passion in Paul to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And and part of that is seen in what Paul actually writes to the Thessalonian believers in his first letter where Paul actually says that when Timothy came, that he brought this amazing report about what God was doing in the Thessalonian church that really brought joy to the apostle Paul's heart. And so no doubt part of that contributed to this compelling work of the spirit in Paul's life to now testify to the Jews, that Jesus is the Christ. The Spirit of God compelled Paul, constrained Paul to testify with an even greater urgency 
and boldness that Jesus is the Messiah, something that Paul no doubt was already doing in the synagogue every Sabbath, but was now being empowered and directed by the Spirit to do in in an even more focused way, which was probably also a reference to Paul being freed up to devote his time more fully to preaching, as Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 9 said that uh, some of the brethren, which would have been a reference to Silas and Timothy, actually brought a financial gift from the believers in Macedonia to Paul when he was there in Corinth. So no doubt at this point in time, Paul's going, look, like I've got some of these resources. I don't have to spend most of my day trying to provide for myself. I can spend even more time devoted to making sure that I'm preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And so Paul took that opportunity, having his time freed up to make Jesus known. But we're told in the first part of verse 6 that the Jews responded to Paul's testimony about Jesus by opposing Paul and blaspheming, reviling, slandering, defaming Jesus. And when they did that, we're told that Paul responded by shaking his garments and telling them, don't you know that I'm intense? Just one more time. I just wanted to, one more try. That's it. I won't say it again. Maybe. (laughs) Shaking his garments and telling them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. He says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This may seem like a strange and even harsh sort of thing for Paul, for most of us, shaking out his garments, we're kind of like, that doesn't seem harsh, it just seems strange. Like, what? what is he, what exactly are you doing, Paul? Getting the wrinkles out? No, he was, it was similar in expression to shaking the dust off of your feet. It was the, I'm not, I'm not letting your rejection cling to me. I'm not going to take that with me. I'm going to leave that with you. Paul shaking out his garments. But this, even what he says, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. This, this wasn't a harsh message for Paul to say. Because we have to understand, as we are going to find a, a Jewish synagogue ruler coming to faith in Jesus after this, that this wasn't Paul rejecting the Jews. It wasn't him saying, He would never again share the gospel with the Jews. It wasn't him now hating the Jews and hoping they all burn in hell. No, none of that is part of what Paul is doing here. See, Paul wasn't willing to let their rejection of Jesus keep him from being able to see that there were other people who were open and receptive to hearing the gospel. You know, sometimes there's a helpful sort of element to shaking the dust off of our feet. There are times where for you and me, we've maybe been sharing with someone who has just kind of outright rejected the gospel. And and you know what's happened in those moments for some of us is that their rejection has actually stunted our Uh, desire to continue bringing the message of the gospel to other people. 
we allow the, the rejection of some to keep us from bringing the gospel to some others who may actually be open to hearing about Jesus. And there is a part of this that needs, you know, for us, we need, you know, discernment to know when it's just not healthy to keep maybe having that same conversation over and over again when someone is just blaspheming the name of the Lord when you're trying to share the gospel with them. But to not allow the rejection of the gospel to be a, a, a deterrent or a hindrance in our own minds to see that, you know what? This person is not indicative of everybody else. This person might be saying no, but there are other people who will say yes. And there is a part of that for us where in some instances we need to be able to shake out our garments. That doesn't mean that we're done with those people, that we're not willing to share with them again, that we're not still loving them with the love of Jesus. But by the leading of the Spirit, being able to not let their rejection make us feel so rejected that we just no longer share about Jesus. Or we don't share with the same kind of boldness or confidence that we once did. Paul was not rejecting the Jews. He was just now focusing his preaching efforts towards the Gentiles, who historically in Paul's ministry were more open and responsive to the gospel message. But Paul's making sure that these Jesus-rejecting Jews knew that he had faithfully preached salvation in Jesus to them. That in Jesus they could find forgiveness and justification and deliverance from coming judgment, that, but they didn't want Jesus. Paul would not be the guilty one because he had told them all that Jesus had called him to share with them. So the responsibility was now on them. Their blood, in a sense, would be on their own heads. And in Paul saying their blood be upon their own heads, he's actually referencing something that God had spoken to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, where God used the example and responsibility of the watchman on the wall of a city who would blow the trumpet when an enemy came to attack, that if the watchman blew the trumpet, but, if the, but the people didn't take the warning that was given, that that person's blood would be upon their own head. Paul was being a faithful watchman. He was obeying the call of the Lord to preach the gospel, trumpeting the good news about Jesus which also warns to repent from sin, which will lead a person to eternal destruction if that repentance doesn't take place. And since these Jews opposed, blasphemed Jesus, they alone would be responsible for their rejection. I, I find it really interesting in, in our day that the term watchman has been adopted in a way where the whole watchman sort of mentality is seen 
in just putting people on blast. And in some instances, it's, you know, there's some real things to be exposed. That's wrong. That's false. That's heretic. That's ungodly. But I have rarely seen in any person who claims a a watchman sort of role any sort of real gospel emphasis. The focus is all on warning or being critical even of a person's ministry. But there's not a a broadcasting of hope. There's not a, a broadcasting of the good news of the gospel in many of those people's online ministry because that's really the watchmen's are found online nowadays Uh, you can find them and you will know them because they will make sure that you know they're a watchman on the wall who's telling you of how jacked up everyone is but biblically in a new testament way a watchman according to paul's reference here It does include warning, but that warning is embedded in the hope of the gospel. Turn to Jesus. There is a warning there because if repentance doesn't happen, then you're continuing on that broad road leading to destruction. So there there is a warning embedded in there, but that warning is enveloped in hope. (laughs) The warning is enveloped in who Jesus is and, and, and who Jesus wants to be in somebody's life as Savior and Deliverer. And Paul saw the trumpeting not as just putting everyone on blast, but as an opportunity to broadcast the good news about Jesus Christ to people so that they could find deliverance, so that they could be saved. And I will say along with that, that this whole blood being upon someone else's head thing, I think for some of us, we have washed our hands of people prematurely. Paul could say, in all honesty, I have done everything possible to bring the gospel to somebody. But oftentimes, what can happen is we feel like We've done everything possible, but what we've done maybe is what was easy or comfortable. Or maybe we've shared the gospel, but we've been a terrible witness as we've shared. You know, we've, we've shared the gospel, but it has lacked in love and grace. It's been more of a legalistic approach to gospel emphasis or, you know, not giving people hope in the gospel. We have to make sure that if we are coming to this sort of place and our witness in someone's life, that before the Lord, we truly have done all that God would call us to do in bringing Jesus to that person before we come to the place of shaking off our garment or saying, I'm clean, I'm moving on. And I would add to that, that maybe for some of us who have moved on from people, 
don't move on and stop praying. Don't move on and stop loving. Don't move on and stop making yourself accessible to those people who in the past have maybe rejected you or rejected the gospel that you brought to them. Because I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I was more or less open to correction, to conviction, to the word of God working in my life through someone else speaking into my life. And there may come a time in someone's life that you've tried to share with in the past where it's a new thing. God's wanting to do a new thing. He's wanting to bring a freshness to that relationship that maybe has been separated. And I would just encourage us to be extra prayerful about those sorts of relational dynamics. Paul was a faithful watchman here. And after making that declaration, your, your blood be upon your own heads, I'm clean, I'm going now to the Gentiles. He enters the house of a man named Justice who we're told worshiped God. The great thing to have said about you. That person worshiped God. They're a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. And, you know, for me, in my imagination, I picture Paul having this very sobering sort of moment, right, with the Jews in the synagogue. Your blood be upon your own heads. And then Paul walks out of the synagogue and he just goes to the house that's right next door. Like, um, <laughs> kind of awkward, but like Paul didn't care because it wasn't about that. Like, he's like, I'm just, I'm moving on. But the moving on was just like literally like next door to the synagogue. And I'm going to keep preaching about Jesus. And through that, God honored Paul's decision. He honored Paul's move to do that. Because as we see in verse eight, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, he was the guy who made sure everything was running properly in the synagogue gatherings. We're told that him and his household all believed on the Lord. So it wasn't that the Jews were just like, nah, like we're pushing you to the side. Remember, Paul was a Jew. His heart was for the Jewish people. It never stopped being for the Jewish people. Even writing in the book of Romans where he talked about the rejection of the Messiah, Paul goes, I wish that I myself could be accursed for the sake of my brethren. If it means that they would be saved, I would be willing to be damned. That's how much Paul's heart burned and yearned for his fellow Jews to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Crispus, one of these Jewish people, a ruler of the synagogue, he believes, and then through that, we're, we, we, we find that many of the Corinthians hear they hear the gospel. They believed in the message of the gospel, the Jesus of the gospel, and that they were baptized, a response to the salvation that they now were given in Jesus. Out of that opposition, fruitful ministry took place with unlikely people. We wouldn't read that and then the next thing think that a Jewish synagogue ruler was going to come to faith. Like, that, that's not the next like, logical step for us. We, we would think, and only the Gentiles got saved from that point forward. 
But that wasn't what God did. God worked in the lives of unlikely people, but that this led to many Gentiles coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And I want to point out that the work God began to do in Corinth was not a work that was free of conflict or opposition, but it was a work that continued in spite of conflict and opposition and difficulty and persecution. And this is an important point for us to take to heart. Because something not being easy or being full of difficulty does not mean that God is not in it or that he can't or won't bring fruit from it. We have to keep pressing into and, and leaning on the Lord in times of difficulty and opposition, the, the hard moments, the hard seasons, not growing weary, not losing heart while we're seeking to do good, to do those things that God has called us to for his kingdom because there is a reaping that will happen in due season, as Paul says in Galatians 6, if we don't give up. I love it in Warren Wearsby's Bible commentary. He kind of like has usually like a title for each section of his commentary that is covering a certain amount of verses or chapters. And in this portion of scripture he titled it it's always too soon to give up always too soon to give up i think about times in my early life i was a horrible finisher of things that i started like i would start things and just not carry them through to completion as a teenager as a you know kind of an early young adult but it's always too soon to give up can we what if paul got to the city of corinth and he's just he's he's dealing with that weakness and fear and trembling and 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 in that place he just goes you know what i don't really want to do this i'm going to go back I, I, i'm just going to go back to Syrian Antioch. I'm just, I, I, I don't, like, I, I don't really want to have to keep going through these things anymore. Like all the things that God did in the city of Corinth would have been missed. All the amazing teaching that we get from Paul's writing to the church in Corinth later on, we would miss out on. All the things that hit us head on when it comes to division and carnality and sexual immorality and, and being single or being married or the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the order in the church, all those things we would we would be lacking. If Paul gave up when it was difficult, I think about the things for us that we face, whether it's personally, 
whether it's in our relationships. That sometimes we can find ourselves feeling like, you know what? I don't, I don't know if this is worth it. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth it. But guys, how important it is for us to be reminded to keep going, to not lose heart, to not give up. The things that God has called us to are worth it, even if they're hard. We see the fruit of this in the ministry that took place in these verses. But let's look at verses 9 through 11 as we finish out this section of Scripture this morning. Verse 9 says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. It's obvious from what Jesus said to Paul in this vision in the night that there were some pretty deep things going on in Paul's heart and mind that might not have been easily seen outwardly. There would be no reason for Jesus to tell Paul, do not be afraid, unless Paul was afraid. Whatever fear Paul had when arriving in Corinth never completely went away since he got there because Jesus needed to tell Paul to not be afraid. And there'd be no reason for Jesus to tell Paul, speak and do not keep silent unless Paul was struggling inwardly with continuing to open his mouth to preach the gospel. It's possible that Jesus gave Paul this vision and spoke these things because Paul was considering just kind of packing up shop and moving on somewhere else. And it's in these moments that Paul becomes that much more relatable in our own moments of weakness and anxiety and fear, wanting to give up or or move on to something else, maybe something easier. But the reason Paul didn't need to be afraid and keep silent was because of a really important promise and reality that Jesus was with Paul. And that's something we need to take to heart and and really hear and, and be attentive to each and every day, no matter what we're facing, that Jesus is with us that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, that no one can snatch us out of his hand, that if he's for us, then who can be against us? And that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is with us. What are you going through today? Jesus is with you. But with that, Jesus made a really specific promise to Paul along with the promise of his presence that no one 
would attack Paul to hurt him because Jesus had many people in that city. Now, this wasn't something the Lord spoke to Paul in every city where he preached the gospel. We know Paul has been physically harmed at least two different times before this because of the gospel. And this wasn't a promise he'd never be hurt in the future either. But specifically here in Corinth, Jesus was giving Paul a guarantee of safety. Not that people wouldn't try to harm him, but that they wouldn't be successful in their attempts to harm him. Because Jesus had many people in that city. Meaning, Jesus was keeping Paul from harm in Corinth so that those who, knew, who Jesus knew would respond in faith to the gospel, could have the gospel preached to them by Paul and his team and be made the people of God through faith in Christ. Something Paul couldn't do if he was killed or chased out of town before they had an opportunity to hear the gospel and receive it. But I want us to notice that Paul needed to be ministered to personally. He needed to be ministered to. The, the, the guy who God used in incredible ways to minister to others, he himself needed to be ministered to. He came to Corinth in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and while God no doubt used Aquila and Priscilla, used Silas and Timothy in coming alongside Paul and helping to uphold and strengthen and encourage him, ultimately, Paul needed to hear from the Lord. He needed to be met by the Lord. He needed to be reminded about the presence of the Lord in order to not be afraid, in order to keep going, to keep enduring, to keep persevering, to keep preaching and to keep making his life all about Jesus. You, are, you and I are not unspiritual because we need to be ministered to. You're not unspiritual if you have moments of weakness, moments of fear, moments of anxiety. None of us look at Paul and go, oh, Paul, how unspiritual. You're a sissy. I we're like, I get it, Paul. <laughs> I get it. I would be in a, I literally, I would be in the fetal position, sucking him on my thumb if I were in Paul's shoes. If I had been through all the things Paul had already been through, I, I wouldn't be stepping into Corinth going, where's the synagogue? Where's some people to preach to? I'd be like, I'm keeping to my day job. I'll keep making these tents. I didn't say it. I was very close, but I didn't say it. But listen, as much as God wants to use other people in our lives, we need to receive directly from the Lord. Strength from the Lord. Encouragement from the Lord. That our hope would be in the Lord. That our joy would be in the Lord. That we would receive the peace that surpasses all understanding that comes from the Lord. We need to hear his voice. 
We need time spent with him. We need to be able to park ourselves at the feet of Jesus to get to know our shepherd's voice and give him the, uh, the opportunity to, to have moments of silence even where we're not so busy that we can just sit and go, Lord, speak to me. Lord, meet with me. Lord, minister to me. That's not a selfish thing to ask because Jesus already knows all the ministering that you and I need. And he is more than willing to do those things in our lives. He loves us. You and I never weary him by coming to him, saying, Lord, I need. We're like, what about Bob? I need, I need, I need. No? Anyways. I'm doing the baby steps. I'm putting in the work. We need. God knows that we need, and he has what we need. He has it. We need that ministry. And for me... Verse 11 is not just a time reference so that we can go, oh, that's cool. He spent a year and a half there. That's a pretty, I mean, there, that is noteworthy because that's, this is like the most amount of time that Paul has spent in any one location in any of his ministry uh, ventures so far. But more than a time reference, for me, it's a testimony of the grace and power and promises of God at work in Paul's life to continue in Corinth for a year and a half teaching the word of God, knowing the dark and difficult spiritual environment Paul was ministering in. Paul's longevity in ministry in Corinth wasn't because he was a super saint who you know, could just persevere and endure through and, and was unfazed by anything. No, his longevity in ministry was due to the presence and promises and power of Jesus Christ in his life. You know, one of the last places anyone would probably choose to put down roots and minister for an extended period of time was the city of Corinth. Yet God was desiring to do a work there, wanted to save many people there in that exceedingly immoral city. And God wanted to use a weak earthen vessel like Paul to shine his love and gospel through so that God got all the glory and he's wanting to do the same things in and through each of us where he has us. I don't doubt God is probably speaking to many of us this morning through these things, wanting to meet us where we're at with what we're dealing with, that we would be confident of the promise of the presence of Jesus in our lives. Is that enough for us? Is it enough for us to hear Jesus say, I am with you? What else do we need? What else could we ever need if Jesus is with us? You and I have everything we need.
I pray that would be true for us today. We'll get into more of this account of Paul being in Corinth in our next study in Acts, but I'm going to have the worship team come back up. In closing, if you guys turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to take communion together this morning. First Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. It says, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What an amazing thing that you and I get to commune, experience intimate fellowship with Jesus, that he would leave us these things so that we could look at these things and be reminded of how amazing Jesus is, of what Jesus has done for us, his body broken upon a cross, nailed there, marred, his blood being shed that would bring us forgiveness of sins, bringing us into a new covenant of grace that we could take these communion elements and actually experience even closer fellowship with Jesus is an amazing privilege. But look, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus personally, I want to give an opportunity to make that decision for Jesus, if we bow our heads, we'll take communion just in a moment. Oh Lord, God, I pray for us this morning. Lord, you know where each person is at. Lord, you know those who, Lord, are dealing with their own moments of weakness, a season of weakness, Lord, uh, fears, anxieties, discouragements, frustrations, maybe. Lord God, you see those things. And God, you're desiring to meet with your people this morning. Lord, just like you said to Paul, Lord, it wasn't a guarantee that there would be no threat, <laughs> that there'd be no difficulty. Your, your promise was specific in that season of his life to not have harm. But Lord, in his fear and in his anxiety and his weakness, Lord, the remedy for his fearfulness was a reminder of your presence. Lord, we don't know what this life holds for us, God, what each of us are going to experience, what kind of suffering and trials and difficulty and things that we're going to face. But Lord, what we do know is that you are with us. 
you're always going to be with us. Lord, you're never going to abandon us. God, would we be able to cling to that promise, that reality today? Lord, would you do a fresh work in each of our hearts, our minds, Lord? Bringing encouragement, Lord, bringing your peace. Lord, that your perfect love would cast out all fear. Lord, that you would bring peace where anxiety prevails. That, Lord, in weakness, God, your strength would be made perfect. That the power of Christ would rest upon us. Lord, we are in need of you. And Lord, we believe that you have many people in this city and in our surrounding cities, Lord, all throughout the East Bay. Lord, you have many people that you're wanting to bring to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, you want to use us to be the people that bring the gospel to them. God, that work that you're wanting to do through us, Lord, do that work first in us. God, would we be a part of the work, Lord, in one another's lives that you're wanting to do to bring greater equipping, Lord, greater strengthening. God, would we press forward seeing, Lord, that your work is to take place, Lord, even in spite of the difficulty. Lord, that we keep clinging to you, Lord, keep leaning into you and pressing into you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, would you meet with our hearts, God? Would you strengthen us, Lord, for those things that you're calling us to? God, help us to not grow weary. Lord, help us to not give up, to grow faint. Lord, we're so thankful, God, for your promises. Lord, your presence, your power, Lord, your grace. Lord, help us to stand strong in you. But look, if you're here and you don't just first have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to give you that opportunity. If that's anybody this morning, would you stand where you're at? If you need that forgiveness and justification, that declaration of righteousness to come from Jesus Christ, your sins would be forgiven, your debt would be paid. Maybe that's somebody joining us online this morning. I just encourage you in your own heart just to pour out your heart to the Lord. Look, Jesus came to this earth and he came to die. Came to take our place, to take our sin, our punishment, to be our substitute. And on that cross, he paid our debt in full. He opened that door of access to be made right with the Father. It only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, God's word to you is repent, to turn away from your sin, to turn in faith to Jesus, that he wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to cleanse you, to make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
And if that's you this morning, I just encourage you just to say, Jesus, I am a, I'm a sinner. Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you justify me? Make me right in the sight of God. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe that you rose again from the grave. (coughs) Jesus, I humble myself before you. Repent of my sin. I put my faith and trust in you. I just encourage you as you do that, the Bible says that you will be saved. If you made that decision, I just encourage you to to follow up with us. Let us know that you made that decision today so we can pray for you and be an encouragement to you. But Lord, as we now take these communion elements this morning, Jesus, we're thankful for your body that was broken, that you willingly allowed sinful humanity to put you on that cross. That Jesus, you lay down your life for us. That your blood was shed for us on the cross. Your blood of the new covenant, Lord. Your blood that brings forgiveness of sins. That's able to redeem us. To cleanse us. Lord Jesus, we take these communion elements this morning in remembrance of you. And Lord Jesus, we sing these songs of praise in response, Lord, to the things that you've spoken to us this morning. Lord, giving you the praise and honor and glory that's due to your name. And so Jesus, we do these things now in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the bread and the juice. God bless you guys.